This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To find out more, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. This is a seminar that I've personally been really looking forward to hearing. It's Melanie Teff from Refugees International, and she's going to be talking about Burma's Rohingya displaced, um, based on her field, field research and travel there late last year. So, um, I think you're all aware it's the Rohingya position in Burma is one that's been extremely difficult, and it's a huge humanitarian crisis that we don't really get an opportunity to hear about sufficiently. So, I'm really glad that Melanie was able to come along today and tell us a bit about that context and I'll just hand over to you. Thanks. Thank you very much and uh, thank you all for turning out on this issue. I understand that uh, this is a pretty good turnout for this event so, so uh, thank you. Um, just to explain as well, um, I, I went to um, Rakhine State or Arakan State with uh, Refugees International um, which is a humanitarian advocacy organisation based in Washington DC um, with a small office in New York and a small office in London that just myself, opened only a year ago. Um, I also went with, um, I don't know if anybody knows the Arakan Project, um, Chris, uh, Chris Lua, who's worked on this issue of the Rohingya single-handedly for like tw- 12 years, I think uh, 20 hours a day, seven days a week. So um, it was good to have somebody with such a level of expertise on, the, on this issue. Um, I, speaking about uh, the, the work that Refugees International does is focused on refugees, but also uh, displace, internal displacement and uh, statelessness and sadly for the Rohingya they, they actually fit into now all of those categories as refugees and, um, and stateless and now since uh, the, the violence in June last year also internal displacement within, within Burma which is an, an, a new condition for them um, the way my organisation works is to um, go and do uh, research uh, missions to countries and spend a few weeks interviewing displaced people, host, gov- host uh, governments, NGOs, UN agencies, um, and then to do um, a short uh, public report with some policy recommendations and do a lot of advocacy with governments and UN agencies. Um, I've been to a lot of uh, displacement situations over the last few years of working with Refugees International, um, and I, in fact, just came back a a few days ago from from Kenya, um, uh, seeing the Somali uh, camps there and urban displacement in in Kenya. Um, I have to say that in my five years of working with Refugees International, I think the situation that struck me the most has been the Rohingya situation. And I think the camps that I saw in... um, Arakan State uh, were some of the worst I've, I've ever seen, and just the level of uh, despair and hopelessness amongst that population is, I think, the worst of any of any of any population that I have uh, had dealings with in the last five years of visiting um, displacement situations. Um, and that may be in part because of the, the statelessness aspect of their and the fact of, of their condition and the fact that they are so rejected within Burma and also rejected in all the countries around where they've gone to seek refuge. Um, when I went to, um, to Burma, it was uh, September last year, 
and that was not long after the, the situation had become even worse than it had been in the past uh, because in June of last year um, intercommunal violence had broken out um, it, which was allegedly started after a, a, a rape of a, um, a Rakhine woman allegedly by, by three Rohingya men um, and then followed that there were a series of tit-for-tat killings with ten Rohingya men uh, who were, who were uh, killed and then violence broke out. It was portrayed as just intercommunal violence but if you looked at what actually happened um, the, the, it, it seemed like there was much, much more serious casualties on the Rohingya side than on the, the Rakhine side. Um, you had, it was really Rohingya villages that were burnt down rather than, it was only a very small percentage of Rakhine uh, houses that were burnt down and the numbers of, of, of dead and injured were much worse on the Rohingya side. And in October, when there was another outbreak of violence, it seemed to be almost exclusively against the Rohingya, with the Rohingya as the victims. Um, just uh, here at a map of, um, of Rakhine State. Um, Sitwe is the capital, and that's where, where we went. But I just wanted to note that the majority of the Rohingya actually live up in northern Rakhine State, up in Bangladesh, in um, Mongdor, Bujidong, Ratidong. And that's an area that is majority Rohingya. And um, that's an area where people, where the Rohingya weren't displaced, but they've been living in a situation of extreme persecution for decades, basically living, living under rules that uh, require them to, to seek government permission to, to marry, to have children, to, um, to move between villages, to repair mosques, um, in, uh, an incredible restriction on their human rights in that area, which had always been far worse, actually, than in capital Sitwe. Um, it wasn't possible for us to get access to northern Northern Rakhine State, unfortunately. Um, but we it, we heard that it was an area that, although not as hit by the, the violence and, and uh, attacks in June as Sitwe was, um, it. It's an area where people have been quite dependent on humanitarian assistance. Even though not displaced, they were receiving humanitarian assistance from agencies who were bringing in food, who were providing medical assistance. And since the fighting in June, access to those areas was blocked. The Ministry, the Ministry of Border Affairs didn't allow access to those areas after June, saying that there were security problems. I understand that there's been a little bit more access since then, but it's still a huge problem for people in those areas. And some people described it to us as, be, as being like, um, immediately after the violence, there was a huge roundups by security services of, of Rohingya in Northern Lapine State. And then it went back to what was described as normal levels of persecution. Um, and, and, um, but normal levels of persecution, but without access now, without humanitarian access. So um, the interesting thing, I suppose, about the Rohingya is we're at a moment of such change within Burma that um, many people are arguing that maybe this is the moment that normal levels of persecution might not be seen as acceptable any longer. Um, it certainly is a moment when there is spotlight on the, on the country and, spot, and the awful violence that in June and October has finally meant some spotlight on this situation. 
Um, many people had never, never heard of this situation before, and finally it came out into the public eye. And even if it was for awful reasons, I hope that that, that spotlight could result in something positive, I hope. Um, so we went to Sitwe, uh, the capital, and um, basically, as that, um, as that September when we were there, this is an Ocha map, um, the displacement camps for the Rohingya were along here. Um, and the, these displacement um, camps for the Rakhine were here. But for the Rakhine, it was really a very small number, maybe 3,000 people at the time. And here, it was around 100,000 Rohingya. Many people suggested to us that it may not have been a coincidence that the Rohingya uh, being pushed here by the Bay of Bengal and that the um, real attempt um, out of all of this was to make life impossible for them so that they will take boats and leave. And if that's the case, um, that's the plan, it, it's working. A lot of them have already taken to boats and um, to go to seek refuge in other countries. There was an invisible line on this that, that is not this map, which um, is... Since the violence in June, the Rohingya have not been allowed to move beyond some invisible point around here, um, and it's not clear how far it extends this way. That means that Rohingya, who used to work in the town over here and at the port, can no longer access the town or the port, and so they've lost their livelihoods. And so th this segregation policy that's come about since, <clears throat> since June has meant that people who were formerly... Um, self-sufficient, exploited certainly, treated badly and discriminated against certainly, but were living um, without dependence on humanitarian assistance. They've been forced into camps here and dependent on humanitarian assistance because they can no longer work because they're stuck in this area. And that's one of the, the serious problems um, of this situation. Some people describe it to us as being um, like apartheid, but worse than apartheid because under apartheid they were saying that, that black people could work for the, black, for the white people. In this case, the Rohingya are not being allowed to work for the Rakhine. And so it's creating a situation that some say are worse than, than apartheid. So this is one of the uh, Rohingya areas in Sitwe that was just raised to the ground. Um, it was uh, during the, the burning of the houses and then it was bulldozed by the government. And um, this is a mosque that was burned down. Not clear whether it was targeted because it was a mosque or whether it was just in an area that was burnt down. There was certainly, as I say, some burning of Rakhine areas, but that was um, much less than the, the Rohingya areas. And then sort of make it a little dark. Um, but we went to visit the, the displacement sites where people, where the Rohingya were staying, and they were really quite shocking conditions. This, I think this was the worst that I saw, which was people staying in government school. And there was like a thousand people inside this couple of rooms in this school. The conditions were really uh, uh, truly atrocious and very high levels of malnutrition. I think in the survey in July said 23.8% in emergency levels of 15. Um, and you had all different sorts of, of camps that, were, that were, were coming together. One of the, one of the real difficulties, though, that, that was arising about the camps and uh, why the, one reason why the camps were so were, and to an extent are so bad, is that donor, donor governments... Were very, were very nervous to put much money into the camps because they were, they were worried about being accused of funding segregation. 
They were worried that these were going to become permanent structures and that people would turn around and say, you, UK government, you, US government, uh, funded this. And they, I think they feel they had their fingers burnt in Sri Lanka. They didn't want to be accused again of, create, of funding something that, that went bad. Um, I think there's been a lot of advocacy with uh, donor governments to, to try and um, ensure that, that uh, the funding does uh, come through because so that people in these camps are not kind of held hostage to a policy debate because people were dying in those camps of the appalling sanitation. And, and this is another, another of the camps which um, are nowhere near international uh, standards, extremely overcrowded. The tents are actually um, Saudi tents that were um, distributed during Cyclone Nargis and were being re- reused. Um, and um, at least there was something, but they were not, they're not in a great condition. Um, and these were also, also really quite rather poor condition UNHCR tents. Um, and this place we went to, another of the camps, this was a rather nice UNHCR tent, but there was an area with um, no, um, uh, there was no coordination of, of services, so there was no food that arrived in this area. And one of the problems, again, was you were seeing um, two completely different humanitarian coordination systems going on. You had the UN system, which was having its own struggles to, to get itself working, but within itself. And then you had a totally separate government and Red, Red Cross, Red Crescent system. Um, and they really were having nothing to do with each other. And the levels of poor coordination between those two systems were, was, was quite shocking to see. Um, just very uh, bad levels of malnutrition in the camps and water and sanitation was one of the biggest problems. DFID has come up with some, I mean, I think it's three million pounds of funding for water and sanitation now, having seen how bad the situation became. And I think this was seven latrines for several thousand people. There was a, a health, uh, there's a Ministry of Health camp clinic, but completely empty. Um, what would happen is a couple of hours a day, you'd get um, some services maybe from the, the uh, Myanmar Red, Red Cross Society, um, and then they might be able to refer someone to take them into the, into the hospital. Rohingya could no longer go into the hospital in town because it was outside of the invisible line beyond which they were not allowed to pass. Many of them didn't want to go to the hospital anymore because they, they felt they'd be treated badly as Rohingya. There. This was a, a photo of a, well, the, so many children in the camps. And it was actually quite interesting because I had had the impression before I came that given the policies uh, against um, uh, marriage and, and children for Rohingya, that there the may have been less children. But apparently in Sitwe, the, it was much more relaxed, the rules. Those rules were, much, were enforced much more strongly in northern Rakhine State. Um, these children were, many of them had been in school before June, but since June there was, there was no schooling going on and there was very little, had been organised in the camp, sadly. This is one of the more, more uh, the, the shelters that's been built either by the government or by UNHCR. And you can see this is the fear that the, that the donors were having, that this was looking a little permanent. And um, it was quite certainly of concern that the government... Um, was saying that this segregation plan would last two or three years and then, then they would see how to end the segregation. I think a segregation plan that's put up put together for two or three years is likely to become permanent. And this is inside one of the, one of the, the, sh- the shelters that are supposed to be temporary. 
everywhere we looked, they were being built. These temp- the, these um, these shelters in in this particular area, and this was um, a group of of um, Rohingya villagers who lived around the camp gave us uh, gave us this uh, document where they were saying, it, which is a complaint they lodged with the authorities, saying these these uh, structures are being built on, our, on the land we use for farming, and so we were, we were very concerned that there's going to start being. Um, problems between the IDPs and the villages around. And the villages around are also prevented from moving, and so many of them had lost their livelihoods. But assistance has been only going to the camps, not to around the camps. And so resentment was beginning to build up between those in the camps and those outside the camps, which is quite quite an ongoing problem, I believe. This, this is, uh, was, was very interesting. This is an area, a place called Al Mingala, and it's in the town in Sitwe. It's the only one of 12 Rohingya areas in the town that was not burned down. And so um, the, many people had moved into this area um, who hadn't been living there, there before, but they also were unable to move, um, and so they were still in, in, in great difficulties um, in this area of town and that's the only actual physical barrier that I saw. It's not much of a barrier. In fact, it's more of a psychological barrier. Many people were saying you could just push it over um, and I had the, uh, I suppose, the, the great benefit of coming in as a foreigner, being able to just push my way through that barrier but uh, Rohingya, who were on the other side, were terrified of crossing it to this side and Rakhine were terrified of crossing to the other side too. Um, one of the big problems as well, um, aside from the government having put restrictions on access to um, aid agencies wanting to assist, it, it wasn't only the restrictions that they'd put on, it was also that their own workers, the humanitarian agencies, were having real trouble finding workers willing to go to the Rohingya areas. And the fear that was mostly being expressed wasn't that they'd be attacked by the Rohingya, um, these were kind workers, but they would be attacked by their own community if they were seen to be assisting the Rohingya. And there was a big campaign by many Rakhine leaders um, against the UN and against NGOs, T-shirts with no UN, no NGOs, being met, um, and demonstrations against UN and NGOs saying that they're only there to help the Rohingya and they don't, um, they don't recognise the problems of the Rakhine. And this was, I think, a real dilemma for humanitarian agencies as well, because if you're looking at this situation on purely humanitarian principles, you, you obviously want to provide to those who are in the greatest need, and that's unquestionably, in this case, the Rohingya. But in order to gain any sort of access, you had to give disproportionate amounts to the Rakhine um, displaced because otherwise there was no uh, potential of access to the Rohingya. Um, this was um, a, a, a Kaman family. So this is a, a, these, these people are not Rohingya. They're Muslim Kaman. And that's one of the... The Rohingya, as, as I imagine you know, in 1982, they were stripped of their citizenship. Um, effectively by the 1982 um, Citizenship Act. The command were not stripped of their citizenship and they, they have um, uh, Burmese documents and um, it was interesting to talk with this family who was saying you know, we are citizens here but we are being treated in the same way as the Rohingya who don't have documents and they were telling us how their children could no longer access their schools and um, that they were 
they didn't feel that their citizenship documents were making any difference at this point, and they were arguing that this was an anti-Muslim issue rather than a purely anti-Rohingya issue. And in the October violence, it does seem that the violence was against both Rohingya and Kaman, not just Rohingya. Um, this is our monastery, and this is with um, Buddhist Rakhine displaced. Um, and there had been, um, we were told, about 1,000 people in this monastery, and then they'd been moved out to camps. Um, and these were some of the Rakhine displacement camps. They're in some ways similar to what was being built on the Rohingya side, but the real difference was space, first of all. It just wasn't crazily overcrowded like the Rohingya camps. But secondly, they had freedom of movement in these, from these camps, they could still go to work, the kids could still go to school. So that was, there was much more of a sense of normality, and that's the real, the real difference between the two sets of camps. They also had some washing facilities, um, which uh, women in all the, all the camps complained to us. There, were no, there was nowhere private for women to wash, which I think uh, every single report about camps since the, back in the sort of 1980s has talked about the need for that to be a, a priority in camps, and yet these camps have been developed without without any washing facilities for women except this one. Um, again, this is uh, more of the Rakhine camps, which had, they had water containers, they had fumigation going on. Not a great situation. Many people were traumatised by having lost their houses, but I, I would say these camps were, were certainly better than what we saw on the Rohingya side. This is very interesting. We went down to the port and um, we saw this little boy and um, we asked, at this point we were with a, a, a Rakhine um, translator and we said to him, you know, this looks like a, is this a Rohingya little boy? He looks like a Rohingya little boy. And he said, no, no, he's not Rohingya. Um, we were saying, well, how do you know he's not Rohingya? And he said, well, he's got a sign around his neck saying that he's not Rohingya. The sign around his neck says he's Hindu. And so... Basically, his ward head had, had provided tags to every, all the Hindus in the community um, with a, to, in order as a protection for them to see that, um, to say that, you know, I'm not a Hindu, I'm, I'm Hindu. And it just shows how the, the segregation issue is playing out. And then this, everybody, many, many people in the camps were showing us uh, tattered pieces of paper like this, which were... Um, evidence that they had paid rent on their houses or paid taxes, excuse me on the, on the, on the properties they had that had been burnt down and I think the closest in, in Burma that you would get to a document to show some sort of proof of ownership and um, people were wanting compensation for what had, been, uh, what had been burnt down. Many people told us actually that under Burmese law if something is burnt down the land reverts to the state um, which seemed like concerning. <laughs> and then just a, a note on the documents. So many people showed us the documents they had and, and the concerns that they had, of course, about the citizenship issue, which is at the, in some ways the centre of this problem. Um, many, people, many of the Rohingya had had these green cards, which are, um, I believe, resident, some sort of uh, registration of residence cards and then in 1982 um, many of those, those were taken away and they were given these white cards which give even less rights than the green cards uh, green, green and white cards are not citizenship cards um, and that's the centre of, of this problem um, and what everybody wanted was this pink card, pink or red card as it's known the so-called citizen scrutiny card which is a citizenship card and um, I, think someone, I think really to obtain that um, 
is uh, at the moment what what the uh, the Rohingya are asking for. I understand that there was talk about um, the uh, potential using the 1982 Citizenship Act in a way that could enable um, some of the Rohingya to naturalise and get naturalised citizenship if you're the third generation. Um, many Rohingya I've spoken to are against that, that saying that under Burmese law, a naturalised um, citizen does not get the same rights as a full citizen, unlike most citizenship regimes. Um, it's going to become more and more controversial as the, the government puts forward proposals saying that well, we're covering this, there's a way for them to access citizenship. Of course, many people in principle as well are saying, I don't want to apply for citizenship of a country that is my country. Um, so you've got a lot of issues around that in, in, any, in any event. Next year is going to be the census in, um, in Burma, and so a lot of these questions are going to arise. Already, the government was going around um, some of the Rohingya areas uh, a couple of months ago uh, trying to get people to register and saying they were counting up who was in an area, and they, they, were, they were trying to get the Rohingya to, to register as Bengali, and the uh, Rohingya were refusing to register. Many people got arrested and, and protested against this. The government seems to have dropped this current registration scheme. Um, but this is, this is the problem they face all the time, is that they're told, you're not from here, you're, you're Bengali, you're from Bangladesh. Um, and um, before I, I'll talk a little bit about Bangladesh in a moment, just the recommendations back in September that we, um, the, that we put out were, were about restoring the rule of law in Rakhine State, prosecuting perpetrators of violence, consistent with due process, the need to facilitate full humanitarian access to everyone affected by the conflict, including all areas where the Rohingya have movement restrictions, whether or not they're displaced. The government was saying, we're giving access to the displaced. Well, that's fine, but what about those who are not displaced who were dependent on aid before? Um, and what about those who are not displaced but can't move now because of your movement restrictions? Um, then the, the need for uh, elaborating and finding a sustainable <coughs> development plan for Rakhine State and, of course, the citizenship issue. One of the huge problems, of course, is that the Burmese government says, well, um, on, we can't end the segregation at the moment because of the level of, um, of uh, problems between these two communities. We, if we ended segregation, then we'd just have fighting again. Um, certainly, um, talking to both communities, it was um, a, a huge level of hatred and distrust was expressed by each community about the other to us. From the Rohingya side, though, they were pretty desperate to be able to get to end the freedom of movement um, uh, restrictions and to be able to go back to life as it was before in Sitwe. Um, many of them felt that the, if the government was to take a, a strong stance with um, leadership on, on, of the uh, Rakhine leadership and made it clear that there would be um, ramifications if they assaulted somebody who went outside of the, the, the area that they're supposedly allowed in, that that would, that would change things. Uh, on the, the Rakhine side, there were very few people that we spoke to who, um, who wanted things to go back, unfortunately. Um, <coughs> some people wanted, that, wanted the Rohingya to have citizenship, though, because they felt if they had citizenship, then they could move, um, that maybe they would move to Rangoon. And uh, this would be a win-win situation on their own. Um, which then I thought the citizenship would be a taboo subject, 
with the Rakhine. Um, but actually, there was quite a lot of interest in discussing citizenship for the Rohingya. Um, there was also a, lot, also a recognition that this situation was hitting the economic uh, development of, of, uh, of Sitwe, and there was a curfew at 7pm, people weren't used to that, that this whole, this whole problem was, was holding back economic development. Um, uh, also, this is a, you were coming through a road map for that kind of state. So, to talk about um, Bangladesh as well. So, um, I was in Bangladesh last year, um, and then uh, this again in September went briefly to Bangladesh. And in Bangladesh, there are um, well, nobody knows how many Rohingya. <laughs> um, something between two hundred and five hundred thousand are the are the figures that are thrown around. Up until a couple of years ago, UNHCR's website talked of there being 30,000 persons of concern um, in Bangladesh to them because UNHCR was only counting the 30,000 who are registered refugees in the two official camps um, of Kutabalong and, and Nayapara. So you have these 30,000 people in these camps which, which have been there for, for decades and who still receive um, food assistance and are in this kind of limbo situation. But outside of those two official camps, you also have at least 200,000 Rohingya, and maybe double that, who are unregistered. Um, the government of Bangladesh doesn't allow UNHCR to register um, the, anybody, any new arrivals. Um, and um, so there were two unofficial camps uh, in, in uh, the, the Cox's Bazaar area. Um, there's Kutubalong makeshift camp, which hangs on the outskirts of the official camp, and then there's Leather camp. Um, both times I visited, I, 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 went, I managed to go to, to Leather camp, um, which is slightly more accessible. Um, and I, th I think maybe just to tell an account of one day I spent in Leather camp last year says something about the, the situation. We, when we were there, there, there was um, the, agent, the NGOs who worked there were having a lot of trouble um, accessing the camp at that point. There was no water services being provided to the camp. So we, we met three young women who'd, been, who'd had to go out to get water to a local village and had been beaten up that morning um, because, but by people in the village who was then coming to use the water pump. And they, they were showing us their, their injuries, they were in a, a, in a bad way. And um, we met women who'd been raped in that situation on other occasions as well. We went, as we went out of the camp, we, we met three men who had been tied up, um, who were just tied up by rope by the forestry police, it, it turned out. And um, one, of the, one of the men shouted to us his um, UNHCR registration number. And we contacted UNHCR about, his, about him, and UNHCR, I think, was able to get him out of detention. But the other two were unregistered refugees, so UNHCR could do nothing for them. And so unless they were able to get enough money to um, pay, pay off the police, then they were going to end up in detention, and potentially indefinite detention, because, of course, Burma can't, uh, Bangladesh can't deport them, because Burma won't accept them. So, and there are, sadly, many people in indefinite detention, in Bang many Rohingya in indefinite detention, so-called RPs, released prisoners, who are not released, but they finished their prison term, but there's nowhere that, that they can be sent. 
And a lot of the, the people we spoke to in the camp said they spent a lot of their money on paying, paying bribes to the police to get relatives out in those situations. Um, so the, the issue of registration is, is very central, but the government of, of Bangladesh has been pretty adamant on this, um, on this point of not uh, allowing for registration. Since the violence in June, um, the, the government of Bangladesh responded by saying, our border is closed. Um, and so they turned back some of the, the people who were arriving from Burma. Many people who were turned back managed to find a way to get into Bangladesh. And we heard that there were, in fact, many Bangladeshis who were sheltering uh, Rohingya who had, who, who had, had come in. Um, but the Bangladesh still says that its border is closed. Um, also, the, the other thing that Bangladesh did was the government of Bangladesh said that those NGOs that were working, who were working to help the unregistered refugees must stop working. Um, and although they haven't actually thrown those NGOs out of the, out of the country, or out of the, uh, the area they were working in with um, the unregistered refugees, it's had a huge impact on their ability to work. It's reduced very much what they've been able to do, um, and it wasn't much they were able to do in the first place, um, and it's also reduced their ability to say anything, which may have been one of the ends. Um, sadly, also, one of the things that it's reduced um, has been the work that those NGOs were doing with the host, host communities who are extremely poor. Um, the, the host communities living around Kutukalong makeshift camp and leather camp. It's maybe had more of an impact on their work with host communities than their work with um, the, refugee, the unregistered refugees themselves. Um, but it, it, it appears that the government of Bangladesh wants to look as though it is taking action on this issue. Um, the government of Bangladesh also stopped resettlement programs back in 2010. Um, it, the, the resettlement was happening out of, the, out of the official camp for registered refugees, and that has been on hold since 2010. The government of Bangladesh said we're about to produce a comprehensive refugee policy, and then we will decide about issues like resettlement. We don't want piecemeal um, answers to little bits. We want an overall, we want an overall durable solution for the whole group, um, which um, we've never seen a policy. It seems that any idea of a comprehensive refugee policy coming out of Bangladesh is on hold. <laughs> um, and so and the, and it seems like there was a hope then, once things started to change in Burma, that Bangladesh was, we don't, was saying we don't want to discuss this anymore because there's a chance they're all going to go home, so it'll be okay. Um, and uh, that, um, once that seemed to be, that hope seemed to be rather dashed by what's been happening since then in Burma, um, there's been no talk from the government of Bangladesh of, of exactly what the future is going to be of this, of this large, large group. Um, since the, also, since the violence in June, um, UNHCR's um, High Commissioner went to Burma in, um, in, in July and spoke with President Tensen, and um, President Tensen actually asked him, would you remove all of the Rohingya, resettle them all to a third country, and look after them in camps until then? UNHCR, uh, very correctly in my view, said, uh, no, we won't do that. Um, <laughs> 
uh, but of course this didn't do very much for the um, hope of the Rohingya community within, within Burma or, or Bangladesh for that matter. Um, and Bangladesh is of course scared that it's going to be receiving many more people fleeing Burma. Um, so we talked about the importance of registration, although it's extremely difficult to persuade Bangladesh at that at this point. And um, although we keep, Bangladesh keeps saying, well, we're worried about criminality amongst the refugees. We're worried that they're, that they're um, creating a danger for our community and that um, there was recently some fighting with, with, um, uh, with, Bang- with um, Buddhist communities in Cox's Bazaar. And we, of course, say, well, if, if you register the refugees, that would enhance security. How can it be good for security to not know who any of these people are? Um, that argument doesn't seem to be going anywhere at the moment, but I think we have to keep making it. Um, and then we just note the point about the um, registered refugees who have been living for decades in this limbo situation, and if the government would allow them some opportunities for self-reliance um, and move away from food distributions towards some, some vouchers and some, rather than, than food distributions and possibilities for economic small businesses of the, of the, of the uh, refugees that would give them a possibility to help the economy in the area and put the, the refugees in a better situation for if they were to return. Um, I, I met with, uh, so a lot of that came from my trip in September. I met with a Rohingya leader at um, the beginning of this week to ask in, in, in the UK to ask a bit about the current situation. Um, he was saying, you know, it slipped off the agenda. No one's hearing about it anymore because we don't have the killings and the house burnings that we had in June and October. But what we do have, he's, he's saying that what's happening is what he was describing as a campaign of extortion and harassment by the police, um, plans for more police stations, um, police posts in northern Rakhine State, and what he saw as a, as a campaign to drive people, drive people out by the, the, the way in which they're being treated by the authorities. Um, he also talked uh, about the um, Burmese authorities bringing in some um, Rakhine Buddhists from Bangladesh into northern Rakhine state. Um, he, he, he noted that humanitarian access in northern Rakhine state is still a huge problem. So it's not just extortion and harassment that's a problem for the community there, but also just access to food is resulting in people fleeing the country. Um, he was calling for international observers, which is um, and, and he, his great call was for a commission of inquiry, an international commission of inquiry into what happened in June in Rakhine State. Of course, there is a commission of inquiry, a, a national commission of inquiry, um, into the, the Rakhine Investigation Commission. But it was supposed to report last year. It's now supposed to report at the end of um, March, I believe. But most people think that that's just going to be put off and that um, nothing is really going to come out of it. But, and that it's a ploy to avoid international um, observers going in. So I'm, I've rambled on for a long time there. I'm very keen to hear if you have questions, thoughts. Um, I, I think that this is despite how depressing, you know, in some ways the situation of injury is, it, there is, it is a moment of potential opportunity because of the focus on Burma that there is internationally and because Burma for once cares about its international image for, for the first time for a very long time. And so um, 
However, I believe in one way it looks, there's a chance for once. <laughs> and so I'm interested to hear people's thoughts about strategies for that chance, <laughs> of, of uh, approaching that chance. Thanks very much. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk slash resources slash connect.